we were talking about the Milwaukee Brewers. We were talking about uh, some of their play, and and Corey from Marshall chimed in about how Mike Brasso not necessarily great at shortstop. I 100% agree with him. But you look at what the Brewers did over the weekend, yet another series win. I mean, this is you said it this morning, and, and you summed it up the best. They they get out of bed every morning knowing they'll take two out of three from almost every team in baseball. I wanted to ask you this. It's another four and two week. They win two out of three against Atlanta and then two out of three against Washington. What would you like? Uh, what grade would you give the week? Because I've been doing this in my uh, Brewers week in review. I, it's a B plus pretty much every single week. I would say for, so like you said, they went four and two, they won both series. What I would give the grade, like if a plus is your absolute best where they knocked it out, man, I know it was a winning week, but I still think I probably only give it a B. Well, that you're also probably a harder grader than I am. Oh, I'm, I'm extremely tough, especially on things that I love. Yeah. And the, th- like the, the reason why I would give it a B is when you look at their week, they won one to nothing on Monday, last Monday, a week ago against the Braves. That was when the team combined for 16 strikeouts. It went Peralta, Williams, Hader. Uh, Peralta was dazzling. Williams, Hader go six up, six down, six Ks. And the offense was anemic, but they won the game because the pitching was extremely good. Brewers baseball. Tuesday, it was basically the same thing, except for the offense couldn't scrape any runs across, and they barely allowed the Braves to score, losing a three to nothing game. And then the look what I found W, where they came out of nowhere and stole that game from the Braves. When Burns pretty much got rocked. Yeah, that was Burns' worst start of the year. It was the first time this season where he's given up at least four runs in a game. Which the irony in in the Brewers winning the game when he pitches poorly, yet whenever he gives up one run through seven, they always lose. Yeah, he is the Brandon Woodruff of this season. Brandon Woodruff could always pitch well the last couple of years and never get run support, and the, that has been Corbin Burns up until that start. The ultimate DeGrom. And then you look at what happened over. So that was a that was a two games to one series win against the Atlanta Braves, a team in the Atlanta Braves that is playing much better from the start of the season where they're starting to get relatively healthy. So that's a that's a better team than what their record says, because I think they're just slightly below 500. Yep. But then you look at the weekend series. It's home. It's the Washington Nationals. Everybody knows that the Washington Nationals are in a rebuild and this isn't a very good team. They're, if you look at the standings, they're one of the three worst teams in baseball. They go in there, shut out the Nationals and get a win, 7 nothing Friday night. Saturday, they go out and get a win, 5-1. to one. And you're feeling pretty good. Like I'm not going to lie, the Brewers looked pretty dominant in those first two games. But again, they're playing the Nationals. Those were two games. They were heavily favored in every single game over the weekend. But I was feeling a little greedy. I'm like, okay, they got the first two. It's time to go in and sweep the Nationals. These are the lowly lowly Nationals. You have Peralta on the hill. You got to come through, especially because in those first two games, you didn't didn't have to use Josh Hader. You didn't have to use any of your big-time bullpen weapons. I felt pretty good going into Sunday, and then Sunday happened. Yep. Anything that could go wrong went wrong for the Milwaukee Brewers Sunday like that was it was brutal to watch. I told you I watch a ton of games. I actually had to turn that game off and revisit in the eighth inning once I settled down for a second. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> it was a tough one. I mean, it was the in pretty much a month. It was the first sign of weakness we've seen from Freddie Peralta. He goes three innings, six hits, five runs, uh, takes the loss, only two strikeouts, and then obviously uh, gets hurt. And now going to the IL. What was crazy is that, and and I do these Brewers Week in Review, and I I save tweets throughout the week to use in the article. Good facts from the writers, funny stuff, whatever. Peralta heading into yesterday was 3-0 with a 1-5-7 over his last five starts. Opponents were batting 168 off him with six walks and 38 Ks, where we know that Corbin Burns is at the top of borderline at the top of baseball in, in terms of his production. Eric Lauer has, has become a revelation. He's, he's pretty much a stud at this point. Woodruff has bounced back a little bit, and Peralta was fi- was rounding into that form that we see of peak Freddie Peralta, and then it all came crashing down. Well, I mean, you talk about that uh... – Freddie Peralta and his numbers from Sunday. But if you if you watch the game, Freddie Peralta looked much better than what those numbers actually said. 
Uh, Corey from Marshall called in. Mike, so technically in the box store, the Brewers only had two errors, but I think you could right. easily argue mentally they probably had about five or six errors where they weren't necessarily errors on the scoreboard. But I think everyone knowing and watching goes, yeah, that's that's an error that led to something bad happening for the Milwaukee Brewers or a positive for the Washington Nationals. Like, for example, Mike Brasso. I mean, the, the guy, he had one error. You could argue he had multiple errors. Again, there was the one where he didn't even field the ball on the shortstop side of second base, and that allowed a quote-unquote base hit. Like, Let's be honest. If Willie Adamas is playing shortstop, if Luis Arias is playing shortstop, that's not a hit. That's an out. Or there was one where Hunter Renfro won't be charged for an error on this, but he had such a bad misplay in right field. He came running in on the line drive. All of a sudden, he looked up and goes, oh, crap, and it's over his head, where if he just would have taken a step back, he's catching the baseball. There's no longer a double. I think there were multiple times at first base when the – Washington Nationals started bunting and kind of playing some small ball where Rowdy Telez could not pick up the ball that was a nice little easy grounder. The one where he tried to attempt to uh, throw it, he wasn't able to get the guy at second when he clearly should have been able to. Then a base hit scores that guy. Then there was another one where he couldn't pick it up and the guy was safe. Like it was some pretty tough stuff to watch where they weren't necessarily errors, but it was just like, this isn't a good game. And then all of a sudden, Freddie Peralta would give up a hit or two after some bad plays, and then it, it just kind of snowballed. So I, I don't think he pitched nearly as bad as what those numbers said, but that's what we got to get to. Well, it's the you mentioned the, the scoring, if you will, and the lack of errors in the stat sheet. One, that's the hometown score. This brings up a theory I've had. I kind of want baseball because when I think about it with pass balls and wild pitches, like a lot of things are called wild pitches when it's just the catcher being inept as a former catcher, what you do, like when the ball is in the dirt, you are still expected to block it. And it's not a wild pitch just because it isn't near the strike zone, but that's what it's scored as. I want baseball to move towards because we have all these stats and, and stat cast stuff and catch probability. Whenever there's a catch probability above a certain threshold and they don't make the catch, let's say it's a bad read or they're slow or something happens uh, along the way, I think they should charge errors on stuff that isn't just they boot a ball. See, I was watching a ton of different games over the weekend, and it, I was surfing around from game to game, and I don't remember exactly which one it was, but you talking about a catcher being able to block a ball, they ended up giving it a wild pitch to, I can't, I can't remember who it was, but they gave the pitcher a wild pitch and yes, he spiked, he spiked one in front of the catcher, but I'm not kidding you. When I say the catcher like jumped up to block it and guess where it went under his legs, right between his legs. And now, yeah, they gave it a, they gave it a wild pitch, but in reality, if the guy literally didn't hop off the ground, it would have been blocked. Yeah. Everyone talks about the time of games and how slow they are and, the strikeout home run, no balls in play. I think the real epidemic facing baseball is the people scoring the games are idiots and they have no, they have no, and it's happened forever, but they have no understanding of let's say what actually goes in, like what is expected to happen in a certain play. So you mentioned when Hunter Renfro misreads a ball, that should be an error just because it drops in behind him or in front of him. That shouldn't put him off the hook of a pretty horrific defensive play. See, that was the one thing like growing up playing baseball I can understand an error or two here and there, right? Everyone's human. No one's perfect. Even the guys that win gold gloves aren't 100% flawless throughout the season. Some of them are. And I'm talking about certain positions that get a heavy amount of traffic throughout the season. But the one thing is just continually making errors over and over again that you shouldn't make. It drives me up a wall. Mm-hmm. And the Brewers seem like that's kind of been their issue, especially the last three weeks. Since they played that series, um, I believe it was in Atlanta, where they had like 12 errors in in uh, that nine-game road stretch, starting with the games in Atlanta. They've been pretty bad defensively. Overall, still a 4-2 and two homestand. They're playing decently good baseball, finding ways to win series. But defensively, especially Sunday, yesterday, they did not look good. And I think you could argue for the past three weeks, defensively, Ben, 
the Milwaukee Brewers have not looked like a very good baseball team. Not at all. Uh, and part of that is injuries. I mean, they're probably their best fielder. Some of their best fielders have been injured and or more consistent at least. So you have other guys going in. But, yeah, they've, they've looked bad. I, I guess if you act, ask Mike Brasso right now, you know, how, how did yesterday go in the field? He said, well, I ain't going nowhere, so there's nothing you could do about it. Oof. Yeah, but I, I pulled it up here, Nelson. They are 23rd in baseball total in fielding percentage, which is obviously plays made uh, based on total chances. Um, f- uh, 27 total errors. But when you look at the specific players, actually, there's there are good numbers that look at uh, runs above or below average a player's worth based on uh, the balls hit their way, the percentage uh, chance they have to make the play. It's not just do you catch the ball or do you not? It's not that binary. It adds a couple more factors involved. You'd be surprised maybe Hunter Renfro has actually been the team's best fielder so far this season, according to this metric. A bunch of other guys are are above average. Some are, are even. But then the bad ones, and some of them may be surprising, have been Christian Yelich, Colton Wong, Mike Brasso, Keston Hira. Well, that's the thing. I know last week... I told Ebo, I go, the best outfielder on this team, hands down, for the Milwaukee Brewers so far this year has been Hunter Renfro. And I would say arguably both defensively and obviously offensively, he's definitely your best uh, outfielder. But yeah, that, that play by him in the outfield yesterday where he had a really bad misjudged baseball, like I don't expect Hunter Renfro to come in and be some huge defensive player. I know he's got a cannon for an arm and you don't want to run on that guy, but don't expect him to have all this range in the outfield and be really great. Now, just for a rule of thumb, when you're looking at, uh, you know, defensive stats and we'll say like fielding percentages, you are going to have guys like Willie Adamas that are plus shortstops plus defensive shortstops that are going to have lower fielding percentages than the outfielders or then the first baseman, just because that's a guy at shortstop that's going to be touching the baseball over and over and over again. Because when you look like in a box score or you look in like the, uh, the book, there's always the six to four putouts. There's always this, you know, the, the six, four, three double play, like shortstops, middle infielders in general are going to be involved in a lot of different plays. So they're touching it a lot. So they're, you can be really good and have lower percentages. Like Willie Adamas is a plus fielder and he's got five errors this season. Yeah. I mean, I will say uh, still, when you project that number out zone total throughout the year, how it, how it looks at all the plays he makes, the how his range, all that stuff. He still is a little bit above average. I would still call this somewhat of a down year and I would for say, him. I would say that you can say, looking at that with the eye test, that Willie Adamas, he's above average because he does have like the range. He makes most plays, but I would say eye test, he's made a few more bad plays than he normally does. Yeah, I mean, fielding war right now, if I'm not mistaken, is he, he's positive point four. Like, like he has been positive, but I would still say this. He is not at his defensive ceiling or uh, playing at his defensive best right now. The, the crazy number here is when you look at uh, these numbers projected out over the year, the worst fielder on the team by far is on pace to be Keston Hira, and he hasn't but I mean, that's a guy that it makes sense. That's a guy that doesn't have a position in the field. Like he's literally never had a position once he made professional baseball. Yeah. His position, or I would say his best position would be DH. But I think the most alarming one is the fact that Colton Wong, who's coming off of a gold glove, a guy that is always up for a gold glove and in the mix to win one. He has the most errors on your team this season. And one of the lowest fielding percentages outside of Mike Brasso, which we we all know we've been talking about him a lot lately. But Colton Wong's got a minus defensive war for a guy that won a gold glove. <laughs> like, that's inexcusable. Yeah, I'm trying to find his fielding war this year. And it's minus point one. Yeah, it is. It's taking me a while to get down that far on the list. That's it's a little troubling, I, I will say. And I mean, also for the beginning of the year, he really wasn't clicking at the plate. And, and there was a stretch there, I, I think, last week where he was probably the team's best hitter. But definitely not what, what you needed, say, out of that leadoff spot. And I, I'm a big I'm a I'm a big criticizer of 
good players, Ben, because I expect more out of them. So Christian Yelich, when he is the Christian Yelich of 18 and 19, I'm all about Christian Yelich giving him praise like this is the best hitter in baseball. But when he's bad, you got to admit it. And and you can just watch since his days with Miami, he has progressively gotten worse in the outfield. Not only, in my opinion, his hustle the balls, but his angles and his arm looks like it's getting worse and worse. He is defensively your worst outfielder. Minus point three. That, that, that's pretty bad, especially in the outfield. Would you say uh, his range also has been limited, say, since the injury? I don't I, see. I I'm not going to get into how much has his range been limited due to an injury, just because I never really thought, especially when he started really hitting the hell out of the baseball in 18 and 19, that he had great range to begin with. Right. Like I don't think it's really affected him that much. But I think if you overall go around the diamond for the Milwaukee Brewers, you look at the catcher position. Victor Carantini is kind of what he was. He was a guy that you bring in late. He's going to be a veteran catcher. You know, he's going to hit with some pop, but Omar Nervaez, he's been so-so, right? He hasn't hit the ball the best this year, but he's not a guy that's going to be a great, you know, throw him out catcher. He's more of a, I'm going to frame my pitch well when I play. Like, he was never known as a great defensive catcher to begin with. The Brewers have actually made him quite a bit better when it comes to defense. Which, for the record, uh, pitch framing is probably the most underappreciated art in baseball by the public. There are a bunch of guys like Jeff Mathis, one of the worst hitting catchers of all time, has stuck in the MLB for, what, 10 years? Because he is a great at, at, at receiving the ball, at managing a pitching staff. I think it's one of the things that is so underappreciated by the public, yet it's clear that people in locker rooms really value it because it's, it's important. See, I just think overall, when you look at the Milwaukee Brewers, it is a little bit frightening to see that they are playing this poorly, especially with some of the players that they have on the team. Like, we keep we can say it over and over. Oh, Christian Yelich won a gold glove. That was many moons ago, and that guy's never coming back. Yeah. Like, he, he will never be that type of player again. But Colton Wong is a huge disappointment, but I think that can only, for Brewer fans going forward, he can only play better. I guess I woke up in a good mood and decided to be optimistic. But the fact that they take two of three from every single team while also having their defenders field poorly and hopefully they all regress back to the mean or progress, I guess. And then there you go. Now you're clicking. I, I, I think injuries have really started to, to screw some of that because, I mean, ideally Mike Barrasso is not an everyday player. Yeah, and I think if you just quickly go around the entire uh, field for the Brewers, catcher has been pretty standard from what you expect. First base with Rowdy Telez has been pretty standard. Colton Wong's way down defensively. Adamas, slightly worse, but again, he's injured. Third base has been a disaster, but again, it's Mike Brousseau. It's guys that shouldn't really be playing. So wait until you get Adamas and Arias both healthy. And then the outfield, like you said, Renfro has been their best. Yelich is just disappointing that he continues to get worse and worse. And I would say... Tyrone Taylor's been pretty standard and Lorenzo Kane at this point in his career is still more of a defensive uh, player, but still you can even tell his legs are starting to go defensively as well. Not as good as where he was just two years ago either. I mean, at least Tyrone Taylor's hitting above the Mendoza line. There's been a lot of rumblings lately with the Milwaukee Bucks and potential trades. Now there was Damian Lillard's name that was thrown out there. Now it's DeAndre Ayton. And it's always when you talk about the Bucks and, and trading and trying to get better, it's always, are they going to trade Chris Middleton? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's weird that we're having this conversation now after, I mean, Middleton's absence was pretty much the, I, I would call it the reason they couldn't beat the Celtics. Well, I think that's, this is, this is why it's interesting to me. All these rumors and like potential trades start popping up literally within the week after the Milwaukee Bucks lose. Now, I think there's some people out there that are probably sitting there going, well, if they had Chris Middleton, they win that series. I'd be one of them. I agree with that. Do I think that they could win the NBA championship, the NBA finals with a Chris Middleton? Maybe. I don't know about this year. I think the West was stronger. The Warriors look damn good right now. And I thought the Suns, they had not played great basketball either uh 
the the quarters or the semis, but I thought at the end of the regular season, they looked like they were fine-tuned to make another run to an NBA Finals. Yeah. Do I think they could have won it with Chris Middleton? Maybe. They've already done it with him, though. But I find it interesting because every single year you don't win, what's your goal for the next year, Ben? It's to get better. It's it's to whether you are this the worst team in the NBA or you are the best team in the NBA, your your goal at the end of the season is to make next year's team better than the one previous, correct? Yep. And is adding Chris Middleton going to make them that much better where they can win a title? Or are they potentially going to have to make some trades? Because they don't have a lot of cap space. They got a lot of the same guys coming back. I think it's everyone outside of um, Javon Carter and I believe Wesley Matthews are under contract. Now, Connaughton is a player option. Bobby Portis is a player option. And both of those guys, it sounds like Bucks fans and the Bucks think they're going to pick them up because they love the city, because they love their role. You need Portis back. But Con- the thing is... Both of them could get way more money, on, in my opinion, uh, on the open market. I mean, I believe off the top of my head, Pat Connaughton is going to be making in the uh, just below $6 million with his player option. He's a guy that could probably make nine on yep. the open market. Bobby Portis, he's going to be making less than fi- just less than $5 million off the top of my head. He's going to be a guy that would probably command like $15 million. Yeah, spot on. I think Portis, definitely, his market would be a lot bigger if he went to true free agency. Connaughton, uh, yeah, a little bit under six, $5.7 million next year. I, the market could be a little bit bigger, but I think Connaughton, for his career, I think he is best served to stay in Milwaukee because I don't know he finds as much success as he does here somewhere else with how the team plays with the role he already has. Portis, though, I could see him. I, I mean, he could get easy 15, 16 million. We saw the edge and the difference that he brings to the court, even when it doesn't show up. I don't want to, like, I'll compare him to Draymond Green here, not to say that he is even close to that Hall of Fame level, level player. But he's that type of player on the Bucks. The the juice he brings to the court. He is he is the Bucks's Draymond. Well, I think when you look at Bobby Portis, Bobby Portis is like your sixth, seventh guy off. The, he's like your first, second guy off the bench. He's your sixth, seventh player, right? Yeah. When they're health, when they're completely healthy. Now Connaughton might be a little bit farther down in that rotation, but I think at when you look at these NBA salaries and like the average NBA player makes like eight, nine million dollars. It's insane. I think Pat Connaughton deserves eight, nine million dollars because. If you look at him, he's a guy that can hit the three. He'll play defense for you, and he hustles. Like, that's an average NBA player, in my my opinion. And he's a guy that can be a glue guy when it comes to a role player in the playoffs. Like, we saw that a little bit this year. He came on, hit some shots. So both of them definitely could command a lot more money. But Connaughton says he loves the city. Bobby Portis already took a sweetheart deal, said he loves the city. He, He is like a... He's a god in Milwaukee. People love him in Milwaukee. You'll see random people on Twitter just going for a run or going out shopping, and they'll run into Bobby Portis, and he'll be retweeting it and saying how he loves the city. I hope they both pick up their options because if they don't, this Buck team is going to be a lot worse next season because they don't have the salary cap space. They are literally, with them paying Giannis the max, with them paying Middleton what they're paying him, and Holiday, that's three guys that are well over $30-plus million, and I believe Giannis is in the 40s. Like they, they really can't afford much more, and they can't dip into much more luxury tax because they are a small market. And I, I know the Bucks have done it, and they've been there for a while, but how much longer are they going to continue to do that? They're already past the, the luxury tax at this point by 11 mil. Uh, but you mentioned trades and that's where it gets interesting because yeah, I, I think they probably need to make moves to help the roster. However, I think those moves are best served to be along the perimeter. I think more athleticism, more shooting will help them a lot. Brooke Lopez though, entering this year is on the last year of his contract. I don't and think you move. You can't, I don't think you move him. No, you don't move him. He's too good. He's so I feel like there are two camps of buck fans. One camp thinks Lopez isn't very good. When it comes to the postseason, I think he's great on the Bucks in the spot. All they ask him to do is be a rim protector. He's like the rim protector. He's great on defense, and he'll hit a three here and there. Like you're not, he is not a guy that's going to go out there and get you 15 points and grab 12 boards because he just that's not how he plays anymore. That was him like 10 years ago. Now he's developed that shot where he's like that big man that will protect the rim on defense. But normally on offense, he likes to be outside of the paint where he can shoot because Giannis is always in the paint. 
Yeah, and he he fits well. His presence defensively is badly needed for this team. And he's relatively cheap off the top of my head. I think it's like 14, 15. Yeah, somewhere in there. 13, 9. So. Yeah, so about 14. That's a pretty good price for what you're going to get from Lopez being a, a rim protector because when you took him off the court, you saw that guys easily got into the paint against the Bucks a lot easier than when him and Giannis were on the court. Yep. So what's interesting, though, is some of the trade proposals brought up. We watched the Sun season come to a hilarious end when they got ran off their own floor by like 50 points by the Mavericks. Dude, Chris Paul. I know there's been a lot of Chris Paul slander and he's a great player, but he looked old. Some are some are calling him the Mito Pereira of basketball. He looked old in the playoffs this year. Like he was I know he can. He's kind of been like one of those guys that has gotten away with quote unquote, having an attitude or getting away, kind of being like a dirty player, but never really being called out for it. But there were times, even in that first series, was it uh, Alvarado? Yep. Was getting in his head. Normally Chris Paul's the guy getting in their head. Alvarado was getting in his head. And it seemed like ever since that series, he wasn't the same player. He was toying with him. And Patrick Beverly went on his whole crusade against Chris Paul. He called him a traffic cone. Which, first of all, hilarious. That's, that's such disrespect. Second of all, has to be some basis there. He also mentioned when Stephen A. started talking about Grayson Allen, Patrick Beverly said, you know, we, why would you ever talk about the guys on this show that us in locker rooms don't care about? And I guess that could be a fair shot at Grayson Allen. If he's, I, I doubt he is part of a team's game plan when they're going up against the Bucks. But trade proposals brought up. So, like, how can the Bucks go and bolster their roster? And one of the players off of that Suns team who sat, I believe, with coach's decision or he was taken off the court, I don't know what happened, but definitely not in great standing, is DeAndre Ayton, the center. Young, athletic, really talented, good defender. There are proposals brought up, pretty much the Bucks getting rid of Chris Middleton, and all these trades are three-team deals because that's the, the NBA is weird like that. But the gist would be the Bucks get rid of Chris Middleton and they bring back DeAndre Ayton. I am here to say that while I would not be completely against a trade of Middleton because there are some players out there that I would say yes to that would come in and make this team better, DeAndre Ayton is not who I would go after. He is not a guy that I think moves the needle for this team. I think it would well, be... Well, you have Lopez. You, well, one, you have Lopez, but I also think it would be a gross uh, misstatement of what you need on your team if you are trading away the guy who was hurt, and that's a large region you lost, a perimeter scorer who can create his own shot, he can defend, for a guy that would play inside. Now, uh, then maybe you move Lopez to, I don't know how it would, would work, but this team is not going to get better if not only do they not help their perimeter scoring and athleticism and defense, but they get some of it away. People know that on this show since like 2018, Ben, that if there's a resident Middleton hater on over the line, it's me. I'm not even pulling the trigger on this trade because if you do make the trade, you get rid of Chris Middleton, who is a ISO scorer. He can shoot the three. He helps open up the floor for Giannis. If you did say trade him, how are you really going to be able to play with Giannis Lopez and Aiton all on the floor at the same time? Yep. Because you can play with Middleton Aiton. And Giannis all on the court at the same time. You can play with Middleton, Giannis, and Lopez all on the court at the same time. You can't play with those three on the court at the same time in Aiton, Lopez, and Giannis. Now, another thing is if you did bring in Aiton, he is a guy that can get you 20 and 10 every single game. That would definitely be a huge boost. He's a rim protector, no doubt about it. But then if you have him in the paint the whole time, he's going to be clogging up space for Giannis. That's why they like having Lopez because he likes to kind of sit out on the perimeter at times. He's also a good rim protector, though. He plays he plays a better role on this Bucks team with what Giannis can do than what DeAndre Ayton could. Yeah, I think you would. I think Lopez at this point is a better fit while Ayton's a better player. The only way like if, if I made this trade with the Suns, I would have to get. DeAndre Ayton and like a Mikel Bridges and then trade Middleton and Lopez out. So I get Lopez out of the way for Ayton to come in, but you get a guy that can shoot from the perimeter like Bridges. I would, but I don't think they do that deal because they're giving up two good players. I would still say no to Middleton and Lopez for Bridges and Ayton. I think, I mean, we saw Middleton's value and uh, yes, I understand the Middleton doubt, 
this was a tough offseason to have that doubt because as soon as he went out, the team, when it came down to you need to be able to create your own shot and Giannis cannot do everything possible for the unit, the other guys missed the shot. And he still doesn't shoot the ball well enough from behind the arc to say that he's all of a sudden a threat from behind the arc. I know he hit some big threes in the playoffs, but he's not that consistent with it to say he can help space you out by driving and shooting. Yeah, so th- the only way I could see trading Middleton away would be if you are going to get a stellar perimeter scorer back. And I don't know what the Bradley Beal situation's like, but his name is one well, that he rings. hasn't been able to stay healthy. I, if, if people are worried about Middleton, and, and obviously they missed Middleton, Beal's been out a ton in the last five years. I know, but he brings a level of scoring, a level of, of athleticism, and a level of shooting that would make the job easier for Giannis. Like the Bucks' problems were all shown when they lost to the Celtics because yeah, the spacing was poor because nobody could hit a shot. Giannis tried to do everything, and it reached a point where kind of ran out of gas, a couple of shots didn't fall, and then the Celtics were ruthless on the other side, and the Bucks were not good enough at defending, and yes, it's a game plan thing, but they were not good enough at defending the three-point line. See, I think I think the Damian Lillard to Milwaukee is more interesting to me. But where would he play? That's the thing. It's, it's where would he play? Because if you did trade Middleton, now you'd have two small guards in Holiday and Lillard, so they would have to be playing the one and the two. But in my opinion... They kind of play the same position. Yeah, that team would get cooked on defense. And that's that's the other thing. Middleton's a better defender than Lillard. But plus, Lillard's a guy that needs volume. He needs 20, 30 shots a game. And that's what he got in, in uh, Portland. Between him and McCollum, when they were the duo, they would shoot the ball like 40, 50 times between the two. They're, he's not going to have that volume on Milwaukee where you obviously Giannis is the guy that's going to get 20 to 30 shots. Then you got to factor in holiday is going to get some shots. The, if they were going to trade Middleton, if that's the guy you're going to trade, because I, th- I think if you were going to trade anyone from this team, I think it is Middleton, but you need to get a perimeter scorer back that can also play some defense. You, you can't go with the Damian Lillard who doesn't really play defense needs a ton of shots. You need that guy that can take like, 10 to 15 shots that's really good and can play defense, and I don't really think there's a trade out there. But the thing is, what does that perfectly describe? And and yes, you might doubt his talent, but that perfectly describes Chris Middleton. It, it does, but at the same time, we've seen Chris Middleton struggle a lot, especially in the postseason. Now, he's had his games, don't, don't get me wrong, but I think if you were looking to really upgrade the team, you would have to trade Middleton to go get a player like himself but you probably also have to throw in somebody else to go get them. And would it be worth it? Some, some thoughts here on who could fit better. They're uh, guys that are free agents this year. Number one sounds stupid, but PJ Tucker, I believe he's a free agent after a year in Miami. I assume he'll resign there. I doubt he'll come back to the Bucks. I think he would add a lot on the defensive side come playoff time, but you need guys more than anything that can fill the Pat Connaughton, Grayson Allen role and be better at it. Grayson Allen down the stretch of those playoffs was a complete liability. Yeah, but Grayson Allen is what he is. You, I mean, you look at the money that he he signed the extension for with the Bucks. It's what two years for like twenty million dollars. He's like an he, he's paid as an average player, but he had to play thirty minutes a game exactly you, because you, of injury. You need someone better to be there. George Hill cannot be seeing the court. You George need, Hill needs to be traded for anything. For anything. No one's going to trade for George Hill. The only, you know, who's a team that's going to trade for George Hill? It's one of those bottom feeders that's just trying to cut cut salary and, and uh, add veteran players so that they can a dump their salary later in the season. But you got you got to find a trade partner like that, a bad team that's just willing to take a veteran contract that they'll end up shedding months down the road. Send him to the damn Lakers. Honestly, he'd fit in pretty well there. George Hill for Russell Westbrook. Would Russell Westbrook be the most hated man in Milwaukee? Uh, It would take no time at all. I'll I'll tell you this. If they traded for Russell Westbrook, a a straight swap. Now, it doesn't make sense contract-wise, but if it's just say it was a perfect world where there's no salary cap and it was a straight swap, George Hill for Russell Westbrook, I would hate Russell Westbrook more than I hate Chris Middleton. 
Well, I think a lot of your Middleton doubt. I, I'm going to call and it. And it's doubt. not even going to be close. Yeah, I'm not going to call it hate. I'm going to call it doubt. I think a lot of your Middleton doubt is. I, I understand it. It is. It is founded in a lot of fact. Yet, I think it is proven wrong whenever the playoffs come and it's clear his value to the <laughs> so, team. So I like to consider myself the resident Middleton hater. Ebo likes to. You but still, I like to take the villain side. Ebo likes to call me the Middleton realist. Yeah, but there reaches a point where you're able to come off of that take when you see enough evidence in the other direction. He he left the game. He was out for a couple weeks, and now the Bucks couldn't score, well, and they're not playing. All of the trades that have been proposed, like the Aitons, like the Lillards, like some of them that are out there, none of them, in my mind, are actually upgrading if you get rid of Middleton. So, therefore, there's no reason to get rid of him, even if I'm maybe not necessarily the biggest Middleton fan. I understand what he is and what he can do. I would prefer a better two, but if you can't physically go out and get one, you you can't just trade just to trade. Yeah. How about this? Um, There are other names that I'm going to throw out. You give me a yay or nay. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon. No, he's already been there, done that. Throwback. No, I, I would consider it. Gordon Hayward. I don't think pushes the needle. He's too oft injured. Yep. He, he hasn't if been, this was Gordon Hayward seven years ago, okay. He hasn't been great recently. I think that, that I mean, Bradley Beal would be another that I would say yes to. See, in a all second. those guys are all injured. Yeah, but and we're but, talking about Middleton missed the postseason with an injury. He's not a guy that consistently gets injured, though. He's been relatively healthy his entire career until this postseason. I don't need to make a trade for a guy that might be a little bit better, but I know he's going to miss a huge chunk of games. Because if I got Giannis, and you tell me Giannis for the next five years is going to play in 65 games with his load management stuff, I'm going to tell you the Bucks are going to win 50 games no matter what. Yeah, but it's not going to matter. They'll get to the... It, that's the thing. They will get to the semifinals of the Eastern Conference every single year with Giannis as long as he stays healthy and can play 65 games during the regular season. You just need to build a championship team that will score around him when it becomes postseason basketball. I know a guy that can help the Bucks perimeter defense and be very versatile on the defensive end. Yeah, and you played with him in high school, and his name's DeAndre Hunter. No, uh, actually, I think DeAndre- I saw I saw some people floating trade rumors about him. By the DeAndre way. Hunter would perfectly fit this team because he's a three and D guy that doesn't need the ball to be productive. But a guy that's versatile on defense. He's if been I was there. DeAndre Hunter, I would tell. <laughs> I would ha- I would have some other beef with the Atlanta front office and coaching and tell them basically, hey, tell Trey Young to quit chucking the ball. Yeah, that's valid. Hey, I, I mean, if DeAndre Hunter comes to this town, I think uh, we have a we have an early line on him joining uh, our fine programming. But versatile on defense, uh, been there, done that in the playoffs. How about Ben Simmons? No, fair point. You, you you said you wanted a perimeter shooter. Yeah, I'm a better perimeter shooter than Ben Simmons. Yeah, but that's because in he, the NBA, in the NBA, Ben, a guy under five and a half feet tall is still a better perimeter shooter in the NBA than Ben Simmons. You could, He's made what one three in his life? Uh, three, three. You could spike a ball into the ground and be a better shooter than Ben Simmons. <laughs> Neither of us really liked any of the proposed trades that were out there online. I think we need to look at the roster just itself and say, what can they do? Because they do have a ton of guys returning, but we know that you want to always strive to be better. So they're going to have to make some changes because I don't think you can basically take the same exact roster and think it's going to walk into another NBA Finals championship. No, but I will say if they go into next year with the same roster, with Portis and Connaughton back, I do think they They'll are be good. the second favorite in the East behind Boston. The Nets are a joke, and, and people that thought that they would get to the playoff and flip a switch and be great again, they were not going to. They're not a good basketball team. The Heat are interesting, but I would still put the Bucks ahead of them. I mean, it's a good thing when you're I think floor, the Heat are like a better regular season team than a postseason team. But they're playing well uh, this postseason. What, they're up 2-1 on Boston right now? Um, I think the Bucks. If their floor is being the second best team in the East and having a chance to go to the NBA Finals, then I that's a great spot to be in. But there are, I would say this, while it is not necessary, there are some valuable uh, promotions you could make, say, take away some of the guys from the rotation, find more minutes for others, make a couple moves. You could get better in certain spots.
Yeah, and when you look at the roster, you have pretty much everybody returning except for those few guys that we mentioned. Bobby Portis has to pick up his option. Pat Connaughton has to pick up his option. We all know Thanasis is going to pick up his option because <laughs> that's like the funniest contract ever. But anyways, the only real players that consistently played much the second half of the season that aren't coming back or currently uh, free agents is Wesley Matthews, which I think the Bucks. he's a decent player, but the Bucks have shown that when he is on the team, they're not necessarily as good as when he was off the team, if that makes sense. And Javon Carter, who was a backup guard, he played some good minutes, maybe should have gotten a bigger role in the postseason, especially with the Middleton injury. But I don't think those are two players that really move the needle into whether they're going to win the NBA finals or not. No, definitely not. But you basically have almost everyone else coming back. And I agree with you. I think they need more or less shooters. And that's what we've been saying since like the 18-19 season with Giannis when he was even more limited shooting the basketball and a lot worse uh, shooting free throws. They've always needed shooters. Going back to that season, it was the Bledsoe's of the world couldn't hit anything. Uh, All of the other role players really couldn't make any shots. I think if you I think they had Wesley Matthews one of those couple seasons and he didn't really show up in the postseason Middleton. He kind of shrunk in that postseason as well. And it was basically Giannis driving to the rim. We see when they win the championship, they got a ton of shooters all over consistently making shots. Now they will have the Giannis's, the Middleton's, the holidays of the world all returning, especially a healthy Middleton's going to improve your shooting. You still have Grayson Allen, who is a shooter. Now, he did not shoot the ball well, but he did play up to his ability when he wasn't having to play 30 minutes. He should be no better than the fourth guy off the bench. And that's fine when he is the fourth guy off the bench because he's a perfect guy off the bench when he's the fourth. Coming in, hitting occasional shots, maybe being a bit of a slasher. I think he probably could have slashed a little bit more. But in general, all those guys are fine. You just need to find multiple guys that can step in and do that. Yes, I, I, I think when you look at the depth chart, Drew Holiday is what he is. Um, the shooting has been wildly inconsistent, but he can also go out and win you a game like he did in Boston. That that part is set. Wesley Matthews, I think that shooting guard role is where you could see improvement. But Wesley Matthews played pretty well down the stretch, so I think he could even enter the year sliding into the number two spot. Middleton is Middleton. We talked about him. And then the the big man trio, if they can get Portis back, of Giannis, Portis, Brooke Lopez, maybe even Serge Ibaka off the bench, if he can give something to this team next year, that works. The only place they need to get better is when you mentioned the three primary guards off the bench, George Hill, Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton. I need definitely the George Hill role to improve and, and get better. But then maybe even Allen and Connaughton, I, I would rather have instead of Connaughton being your, your sixth man and Allen, your seventh, bump those guys down, get me a scoring guard. And I don't know exactly who fits the bill, but years ago, Lou Williams, whenever he would, he would be the sixth man on whatever team back a point guard, come off the bench. He'd give you 16 points. Easy. He can go get a bucket, create his own shot. Not the best defender, but he he would provide a lot of value because scoring like that, when you go to the bench for stretches, Giannis plays a lot, but when you go to the bench, you kind of have to survive until your starters and your stars are back. Guys like that negate, say, what the other team is doing. If they can go give you a seven-point spurt, then you've survived the minutes that your stars are on the bench. So if you can give me a six-man that can just go get a bucket and score, put him behind Drew Holiday, and then have Allen and Connaughton there as well, I think that's really where they should look. See, if I'm just looking at the roster that they currently have and the players that were on there for this last season, I think they're even better off if you can find a, a trade partner with a low-level team that's just looking to shed shed salary towards the trade deadline. If you yeah, do, but how can the Bucks eat that salary? I'm saying if you can somehow make a trade to get rid of George Hill and you sign Javon Carter to a an extension or I guess a contract where Javon Carter is getting paid what Javon Carter is worth. I even think that's an upgrade. Just yeah. getting rid of George Hill and adding Javon Carter for the full year. He's Jav- Javon Carter is not a great player. He played some good minutes, but I think him overall is a better player at this 
point in his career than even George Hill. And that's a, that's a very simple move. That's not even talking about going and getting a Lou Williams type player. Like you said, that can score. That's just a simple move with guys that you already are familiar with. Yeah. And well, the reason I bring up a Lou Williams type name is those players aren't that hard to find. The league is so deep with guard depth and guys that can score and get a bucket where it could be an established guy. It could be a younger guy, but give me give me a backup point guard six man sweet Lou and then the team is better and really what that also like it helps everyone else when you go to the bench or even if he plays with Giannis then you run a pick and roll with this guy and Giannis that's really hard to stop but there was an injury on Sunday despite that ugly game there was something bigger and that was the injury of Freddie Peralta and according to Craig Council they are going to be putting Freddie Peralta on the 10-day IL He's expected to have an MRI here sometime soon, and we will see exactly how long Freddie Peralta will be out. But this is definitely going to affect that starting rotation, which at times the Brewers had gone with a six-man rotation, letting Aaron Ashby be that six-man. Yeah, I, I guess this is time for... While him going to the IL sucks, this is time for me to pump up Eric Lauer's stock as much as I can right now. But I I guess the Brewers are kind of well-equipped to go to a rotation like that. I know a lot of teams in baseball, one of which I follow semi-closely in the Phillies, they are not well-equipped to go to a larger rotation because their pitching is just not deep because their team is not well-constructed. I would say the Brewers are. They are kind of in a good position to weather a storm like this. But Peralta going to the IL, and and he'll probably miss a couple turns through the rotation. Now, Council did say that... Because there was, I saw some rumblings on Twitter. Ethan Small is a guy that the Brewers are very high on. He is a a Triple A pitcher. He's one of their top ten prospects and one of their higher rated pitching prospects. He was one that some people thought could this be Ethan Small time if they continue to go with that six man rotation. But Craig Council did say they were going to stick with just a five man rotation, and Aaron Ashby would be the fifth man because he had kind of been that sixth guy that would be in and out of the rotation coming in for like a, a long period of time out of the bullpen to give them two, three innings. But it looks like they will go with just a five man rotation. I believe Ashby gets the third game, the day game of the San Diego Padres series that starts tonight. First pitch eight forty. So when you mention what the rotation can look like, uh, there are five names that are leading the national league in strikeout percentage. One of which Max Scherzer makes a lot of sense. He's at fifth. He's now on the IL. He, he is also now injured. That's that's a thing. When you pitch for the Mets, no matter what's going to happen, you're going to get hurt, and it sucks, but that's kind of... I, I guess when you are a hitter and you go to the Brewers, you're probably going to be average, if not below average. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one of the things that comes with the franchise. Number one is Carlos Rodon in San Fran. He's been unreal. I think he won Cy Young last year, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. in the, Which He was with the White Sox. Yeah. In the AO, he he might have, but he's filthy. But then two, three, and four are all Milwaukee Brewers. Number four is Corbin Burns, one of the best pitchers in baseball. Number three, Freddie Peralta. We know the strikeout ceiling's high. But number two is Eric Lauer. And I'm going to pump this stock hard because he's a guy that, obviously, the trade when it, a year ago, pretty much, I saw this tweet being quote tweeted. Ken Rosenthal was talking about the trade uh, of Lauer and and, uh, Trent Grisham goes to the Padres uh, and Zach Davies for Luis Arias and Eric Lauer. Now, Ken Rosenthal had tweeted that. He said pretty much uh, the Padres did well because Lauer was back in AAA a year ago. Meanwhile, Trent Grisham was playing well, and the Padres used Davies to get you Darvish, who, who pitched for them for a bit. But from one year ago today, but right now, Eric Lauer has a 2.16 ERA. His whip is under one, 11.7 strikeouts per nine. He's four and one. He is pretty much minus one start against Miami where he gave up four runs through five. He has given up one run or fewer in pretty much all of his starts. He, he's been disgusting. Luis Arias is hitting 283 uh, with an OPS plus, And I was mentioning the number he's up at 138. So that's, that's a significant step above what a natural MLB replacement level hitter would be. Meanwhile, Trent Grisham is out there in San Diego. He's struggling hard. He, he's hitting 150. His OPS plus is a little bit above Lorenzo Kane. And I'm pretty sure he has a really high uh, strikeout rate. Yeah, it's been bad. His on-base is 260. His slugging 
244. Horrendous. Zach Davies, meanwhile, 4.3 ERA, 6.9 strikeouts per nine. You and that's re- with Arizona. You revisit that trade, and, and we're mentioning David Stearns and his soft voice, maybe wooing other teams into making favorable deals. This was another one. I think this might have worked out better than all of them because uh, a lot has been written. Uh, I've seen Kurt Hogg of the Journal Sentinel, Will Salmon of the Athletic, write a lot about what Eric Lauer has done since getting in Milwaukee. It's another example of the pitching machine working to perfection where he changes a bit of the arm angle. He he adds a couple miles an hour uh, to some of his pitches, and now he has become borderline unhittable. So while Peralta... like. A couple years or last year, if you say Peralta goes down, I would have been a little questioning because then you have your top two, obviously. Then there would probably be a big drop off before you get to Hauser. Right now, I mean, Eric Lauer is pitching like the second best guy in the rotation. So if anything, you still have those three quality arms. Hauser hopefully can be okay. And then you hope Ashby can hold his weight, pitch to a four ERA, be okay. Maybe the Brewers finally heat up when, when he takes the mound. Yeah, I think you could argue with how Eric Lauer has pitched so far this season. For the first two months of the season, you could probably get by with saying the Brewers had four aces. Yes, you have Most Corbin definitely. Burns, who's the reigning Cy Young, and after his first start, looking like he's rounding back into that shape. You have Brandon Woodruff, who's had a lot of bad luck this year, but he's Brandon Woodruff. He's been the most consistent Brewers pitcher since 2018, 2019. Yep. And then you had Freddie Peralta, who, again, kind of like uh, Woodruff, had some unlucky bounces the first few starts, but looked like he was rounding into form until the shoulder injury yesterday. And then you had Eric Lauer who joined that club. Now, Ben, you weren't with us back in 2020 when that trade was originally made. I was one of the few people that actually liked it because a lot, a lot of people did not understand the trade because of Orlando Arcia and all this other stuff. Now I liked it because I thought you look at what you got in Eric Lauer. He was a guy that was an opening day starter for the San Diego Padres, I believe in 2019. And he was still relatively young. I mean, he's still young, but he was really young then. I think he was 23 when he started opening day, somewhere in there, 22. And you could see that there was room to grow. Then also with Arias, I love the move because I felt like as Brewer fans, we were waiting on Orlando Arcia forever, who was a top 100 uh, prospect, to be that guy, be that star. And he just never could put it all together. Instead, you were getting a guy that had a profile very similar to Orlando Arcia in Luis Arias, but he was like four years younger. He was a guy that had a little bit of big time, uh, big league experience at an extremely young age, but like Arcia was never able to duplicate that once he got to the big leagues. Now, I thought it was a lot of high ceiling moves. Like at the very, the very least, you get Lauer, he can be an end of the rotation guy. You get Orlando Arcia, he's a ceiling guy that could be your starting shortstop in a season or two. Now, 2020 hits, Eric Lauer couldn't get couldn't get going. You had the pandemic where they had the stop and start spring training that t- turned into summer camp. He had like a girlfriend or significant other that got COVID and then he couldn't be around the team for multiple weeks. Then he got like COVID and couldn't be around the team for multiple weeks. Never really got going. Never really. Cause remember they, all they had was alternate training sites. He was never able to go to a minor leagues and actually get ready. And, and he was basically worthless in 2020. Same token. Luis Arias did the same thing. Called up here and there, made some errors, couldn't hit the baseball at the major league level, and everyone was saying, these two guys suck because Davies was so-so, and then Grisham busted onto the scene for that one really good rookie year. But yeah, tables have definitely turned on that trade as Grisham looks like more, since they saw more and more of them, professional hitters have found the hitches in his swings, and he is striking out a ton. Davies was moved on, and he's never been anything other than a so-so pitcher. Davies is the most, there are so many guys like this in baseball, and honestly, you need them. You call them inning eaters, even though when you call someone an inning eater, it really just means they're not that good and they pitch a bunch of innings for you. So it's like if they're a good pitcher, you don't call him an inning eater. He is the most classic mid fours, really average number four spot in the rotation. He'll win like eight, nine games. a He year. used to be on the Milwaukee Brewers. He used to be a two yeah. or three on this on this Brewers team years ago. And I think this is where you have to give David Stearns credit is because you look at Zach Davies now and Zach Davies now, I don't even think 
gets into the top six of this Brewers rotation. I think Ashby's ahead of him if he's on the roster. I would agree. So, yes, you had a Lauer that had a higher ceiling than a Davies. He was always going to be what Zach Davies was. You just had to allow Lauer to get it right, get past that COVID year. And you had a Luis Arias who had a higher ceiling than what Orlando Arcia did, more or less just because they had the same profile, but he was like three, four, five years younger. Yeah. He had time to grow. Yeah. Now, I think we have somebody on the line here, Ben. Well, so I'm going to go to line one real quick, or do you have some? Quick, when you mentioned unlucky bounces for Freddie Peralta. Uh, now, uh, last year, he had a 2.8 ERA. He was tremendous, obviously. But FIP is a number that looks at your ERA and takes away the luck of fielding, if you will. Uh, it, it looks at what you can control as a pitcher. How many guys do you strike out? Do you miss bats? All that stuff. His FIP was at 3.1. So maybe got a little lucky. But this year, his ERA is up at 4.4, which is startlingly high for how good he is. His FIP is 2.09. So he is showing all of the signs of being an ace. Now, as time goes on and hopefully he comes back healthy, we're going to see the ERA trend back towards that number. That's usually how the FIP works. I have I have two two comments for you. That is for both him and Brandon Woodruff. And two, if you want to be a nerd, please call it FIP. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm an F. I, I, I like letters. You know, I like I like spelling out the letters. Ben, we've kind of been teasing this topic, the topic of the Philadelphia Phillies and their old stadium from the past, Veterans Stadium. And we were kind of talking about how this has kind of just been revisited recently because yet another unfortunate thing has happened. Now, cancer is something that's pretty ugly just in our society in general. I think probably every family has been touched by cancer, at least to some degree. And the Philadelphia Phillies family is no different. But this is what's super interesting. Now, since the time that they were playing in Veterans Stadium, which was the stadium they had previously, there has been 10 players. Now, in baseball, when you say, oh, someone's got cancer, you can kind of point to some of the things, like when Tony Gwynn died. You can kind of point to, well, he had mouth cancer. Obviously, that was probably from him chewing tobacco. Like, I don't think there's really a a case to be made that it was anything else, right? Like, it's pretty straightforward. Baseball players, if you're going to have cancer of the mouth, it's probably tobacco. Well, this one with the Phillies is extremely interesting because these are these aren't mouth cancers. These these are like nasty brain cancer. And it's not just one or two players because we know just in society, a lot of people are getting cancers these days. These are these were 10 guys that have now passed away from these Philadelphia Phillies teams and and kind of to uh bring back to a topic Ebo and I talked about, and I think you were in here for this when we were talking about Hooters, we were talking about the, the first ever Hooters chick when we were talking about John Daly and one of the guys that actually married the first ever Hooters chick played for the Philadelphia Phillies. And, um, his name escapes me. here. Darren Dalton. Yeah. Darren, another guy brain dies of brain cancer. But now I've, I have seen that there has been 10 guys that have played with the Philadelphia Phillies that have now died of like a bad brain cancer or something to that extent. And it's crazy because now people are talking about how they think it's actually the stadium. Yeah. Well, veteran stadium, the old vet was an absolute dump. Uh, And when I say dump, like it was the worst stadium ever. It was the one that everyone famously says, Oh, there's a jail underneath. Well, that was true, but it was the prime form of your hybrid football baseball stadium that doesn't really fit both. Uh, it, it definitely got loud. Uh, the, definitely there were a lot of moments there, but the stadium itself was was a complete dump. And yeah, uh, it was six members of the 93 team, a team that went to the World Series, lost on that Joe Carter home run, have passed away from it. And I, I mean, it's interesting you hear uh, one of the, Ruben Amaro actually, who was on that team, former GM of the Phillies, third base coach for the Red Sox and the Mets now works in radio in Philadelphia said that. Yeah. I, I thinking back during those hot summer days, you could see like steam coming up from the turf. Well, which, that's, that's what they're talking about. Like from in a 20 year span, Ben, from your 1973 to 1993 in that world series team that you were talking about, there has been 
10 guys that have been diagnosed, sorry, with cancer. Yeah, six this, have passed away. And six have passed away. And it is over 3% of Phillies players from that time period, which is just astronomically insane. It's like there has to be something to it. It's not just random luck at this point. And and it's it's pretty crazy because when you start diving into what these people like on these message boards or, or Twitter threads are talking about, they're talking about was it asbestos in Veterans Stadium? And then some people, like you just mentioned with the turf, was it the turf? Because a lot of the guys now that were on there are now saying they think it was the turf and the chemicals used in the uh, the fake turf that they used for the infield. And that's that's wild because if that is if that can be proven to be true, there is going to be a lot of players over a twenty period, twenty year period that probably should be in a class action lawsuit coming at a the Phillies and then b Major League Baseball. Yeah, and I mean maybe the NFL as well. I I think it is it's been great that we have clearly moved as a society. When you talk about sporting events, franchises, they have moved into mostly state of the art venues. Right. American Family Field is uh, one of the best out there. The roof obviously serves a tremendous purpose. Lambeau Field, while it's old, is by far one of the best out there. What they've done to spruce it up over the years. Camp Randall as well. Moving it moving to state of the art places and not like an Oakland Coliseum where you play both the games there. It's hideous. Nothing makes sense. Uh, Probably smells horrible. There are rats living there. The movement has been great, but I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if more comes out because you think about it. It's I, in Philadelphia the the summers get humid uh, as they do here as well, um, and when, when you get that heat and whatever the plastic and all the particles and all the stuff inside the turf, I, I guess it makes sense that it's not good for the body. And now I know that this was whew, at you know 30, 50 to thirty years ago is the time period we're talking about, but that was a big time period just in in professional sports in general, especially baseball, where they were going to more of these artificial turf fields. And what did they find just with the everyday aches and pains that it was tough on players' knees? And it, look at football; you have a lot of ACL injuries, you have a lot of knee injuries. It, it's tough just then, but now you see a lot of major league stadiums going away from the artificial turf. But then you even, even in today, I know it's again, 30 years past when the stadium was consistently being used, but now you have high schools like some Prairie high school, which was the huge brand new one. They built just a few years ago before they decided to build another one. They put an artificial turf in. Now I'm sure it's different, um, different Astro turf and different um, technologies being used the last few years than it was 50 years ago, but still it raises questions like, is this really safe? Because, and I'll tell you this from playing on both a baseball field that was artificial turf and some football fields. It's not even that fun to play on those turfs because in football, if you're getting tackled, you get like rug burns. It it more or less burns. You always get pelt in your eyes. I, I would rather prefer to play on natural grass or something closer to that for all sports. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a grass fan. I've always played on grass. Just one. It was, I, I hated just because of the sliding, the sliding you could take off like 10 feet earlier than you could before. And you're going to get there, but just, just the burns and getting like all the little rubber pellets on you. It, it was kind of annoying. Yeah. I didn't do much sliding in my day. I was, I was mostly upright. Well, I was going to say you're a catcher. No one's, no one's going to act like you were going to steal like every single base. No. No, and when I when I, I I was a station to station hitter, if you will, uh, poke a single through the side, get to first, mosey my way to second, somehow reach third. I I can't say there was much sliding action. See, done. in my younger days, I was a little more limber, a little a little lighter, a lot faster. Mm. I was the guy that would get on base and then steal bases. So I I know all about those turfs. Yeah, I know. There's a rumor going around you ran a four four forty in high school. Not quite that fast. Oh. But not these days. Where I think I could hit the five six forty, but uh, definitely not the the four six forty. But uh, we'll go to the phones here. We have one. Who's on line one? Hello. Hey. Who hey. Do we got? Hey, you got your Maytag man. What's going on, man? Hey. So, uh, well, you might you might know about this, Ben. Uh, Tug McGraw. Yeah. 
when asked way back in the day if he preferred grass or AstroTurf, he said, I don't know. I've never smoked AstroTurf. <laughs> Which, well, it sounds like that ended up getting to his brain because if I remember correctly, he's yep. one that's passed. He is. Yeah. And that, uh, is, that, was, that was always one of my favorite uh, favorite quotes. It, Tug McGraw was like Yogi Berra, you know, as far as uh, quotable characters in in Major League Baseball. Well, I don't think you could smoke AstroTurf. I doubt it would really burn. Well, you, you never know. If you wanted to smoke AstroTurf, you might as well just go to a NASCAR race. <laughs> right, right, Touché. exactly. But, I mean, and some people don't know, but Tug McGraw, actually the biological father of Tim McGraw, the country singer. That is correct. You're, you are correct. And weirdly enough, I actually have a baseball that's signed by Tug McGraw. I, I just thought every Southern dude that was in country was last name McGraw. No, I, well... No, it's just a stereotype. Just a stereotype. Which I naturally carry on. All right, man. Appreciate the phone call. Lo- love you guys. We'll see you. See ya. Yeah, I just I just found that to be so interesting because if you literally have all these guys getting cancer and and everyone is saying it's from this field, yeah. like something's up. And I, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that it is known nationally as probably one of the worst stadiums ever constructed. Well, I mean, I can just read the names of guys that played on this this field for a long period of time and have passed away. I mean, you we've mentioned Ken, uh, Tug McGraw, Ken Brett, Johnny Oates, John Vukovic, Vukovic, Darren Dalton, David West. And I mean, I know he's a polarizing figure, but even uh, Kurt Schilling is a guy that's had cancer and played for the Phillies for a, a decent stretch of time. He was on that 93 team. Like, there's a lot of guys just in the ones that we've mentioned there that have passed away that have now had these brutal cancers. Sherling also put ketchup on his sock. That's debatable. <laughs> There's no way that was ketchup. I am a Kurt Schilling conspiracy realist here. It was ketchup.